what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. He shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. You, you would have seen that video, of course. Uh, it's one of those things that we all probably have seen, those of us who are older. Uh, it was done in 1966, actually, and I, I uh, was born in 1972, so it was this older than I am. And yet every year we still kind of find our way to, to the Charlie Brown Christmas. And Linus, this really is the, the moment in the show that it climaxes with this reading of um, Luke chapter 2. Uh, what I want to do in the next few minutes is I actually want to just wander through this passage and I want to show you a couple of things about God that the Christmas story tell, uh, describes, all right? Um, specifically, two, one, I want, I want to focus a little bit on God's providence in this story, and then I also want to focus on his priorities. So the Christmas story tells us something about the providence of God, and it tells us something about the priorities of God. I've spent so much time with this passage over the years. There's so much to it. And so it's been always really hard for me when I preach on it to um, limit my comments to just a few. So I'm trying to streamline it today because it's Christmas and I know not an hour. We're going to try to do this in a shorter period of time, but we'll see. I'm just, just kidding. Just kidding. So look, let's look first at the providence of God. What do we learn about the providence of God in Luke chapter 2? So here's Linus's words, which were first the words of, of Luke. In, in those days, a decree, something to say in just a second about the decree, but it went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus was the most important, powerful leader in the entire world at the particular time. The Roman military, the Roman uh, state was probably the strongest group, the strongest nation that had ever walked the face of the earth. They dominated everything. If you look at maps of that time, the Mediterranean Sea was basically, was basically a Roman lake. Rome had all power over Everyone. What's interesting about Caesar Augustus, though, is in, in uh, 6 BC, okay, we have found an, an inscription that dates back to 6 BC on uh, some stonework that we think is part of an, a temple to him. He was considered a god, 
But what's really interesting about the inscription to him is that it uses really interesting words. It talks about the gospel of Caesar Augustus. The Greek word euangelion, the, the gospel, the good news of Caesar Augustus. It says that he was the savior of the world who is born to bring peace to all men. Sound familiar? That a boy. Now, the reason, the reason they said this about Caesar, about Caesar is because he bought, brought along what's called the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana was called the peace, of, the peace of Rome, and everywhere the Romans went, they supposedly brought peace. By the way, it was a peace by sword, okay? It's the kind of Soviet Union type of peace, right? Don't say anything. The Chinese type of peace right now, the Communist Party, don't you dare do anything or we'll destroy you. And so that the, you know, all that's left over is just the peaceful people. So it was a heavy-handed sort of peace, but he did, to these warring factions all over the place, he did bring a kind of peace. He connected the entire empire. It was remarkable. People thought, like I said, they thought of him as, as a god. What's really interesting is that Luke would actually mention this guy here. It's a little bit odd. So he's trying to draw your attention to Caesar and some stuff that he did, specifically the decree that went out from him. It was a decree that all the world, notice how many times this word shows up, which should be registered. It was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee. This is uh, like the state or region. He went up from Illinois, from the town of Rockford, or whatever, anyway to Judea, Minnesota, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Now, here's the thing. If you were expecting a Messiah, which most of uh, the Jews did expect, okay? So even though Caesar brought a bunch of peace to the area, he was still, like I said, bringing the peace by the power of the sword. And it was a it was an oppressive kind of peace. And the Jews, of course, had been given promises about the promised land, that it would be theirs, that God would come and grant them that land. We know the whole history. They go across the Red Sea. They kind of go across the wilderness. They possess the land. It's supposed to be theirs, but over a series of years, they disobey God, and he ends up giving them over to uh, oppressive armies. Other groups that would come in and would dominate them. This is just the latest group, the Romans, but they're probably the strongest one that they faced. So all the Jews lived under the oppressive rule of the Romans, and there were prophecies that said that one day Israel would be freed from all of their oppressors, like the Romans, like the Babylonians. And it would be freed through the birth of a Messiah, through the birth of a, the Christ, the birth of the deliverer. Like Moses was a deliverer for the people of Israel, this guy would be a deliverer for the people of Israel once again. And he would cast off the Romans and their power. There were prophecies, like I said, about this. One of them is in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem... Ephratha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from ancient days. So this Christ, this deliverer is supposed to be born in in Bethlehem. But God's got a problem. (laughs) And the problem is that these guys live in Nazareth. It's about an eight to 10 day journey. If you're gonna go downtown Chicago all the way to Rockford, it's about 90 miles. That's about how far it was. About eight to 10 days. I don't know, how long would it take with a pregnant woman? My wife used to throw up on the side of the road every five miles or so. So I don't know, a couple weeks. I, I don't know how long it would take. But there, there they are. They're supposed to go to Bethlehem. So how does God get the deliverer that all the people expect to be born in Bethlehem? How does he get them from Nazareth, if Jesus is, in fact, that guy? How does he get him from Nazareth to Bethlehem? And the answer is what I brought up before. It's this decree. It's the registration. He was of the house and lineage of David to be registered. There's the word again, with Mary. It's like Luke is saying, registration, registration, registration. Did you know that they needed to be registered by a decree from Caesar Augustus who brought the Pax Romana, savior of the world, king of kings? You know him? Mary was his betrothed who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. This, This is basically the Bible's story of the birth of Christ. Put that in your Christmas and smoke. I mean, it's just, it's just so plain. Uh, oh, by the way, while they were there, uh, it came time for her to give birth. And she did, she gave birth. That's essentially what happened. She gives birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in a swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Where's the innkeeper? I thought there was an innkeeper in this story. Is he not here? Was no place for him. So we've basically taken this and made a really mean, horrible man out of it. There was no place for him in the end. You get out of here, guy. Anyway. So here's the thing. How do you get, how do you get Jesus to where he's supposed to be born? God uses the oppressive rule and the oppressive decree from the king of kings, bringer of peace, to put Jesus there. Do do you see this? Luke's actually really pointing it out strongly. He's essentially saying, guys, don't you realize that Caesar, this one moment, was a moment where Mary and Joseph would have been thinking to themselves, man, eight to 10 day journey. Why Why do we live under this oppressive regime? God, where are you in the midst of this? You promised us this freedom. Where's the Messiah? When is he coming, Lord? If I'm on that trip and my pregnant wife is walking, I'm like, seriously, how much longer are we gonna have to live under the stupid Romans? They're horrible, I hate them. God, what are you doing? When are you gonna bring the deliverer? He needs to be born in Bethlehem. We don't see it on their way to Bethlehem. (laughs) That's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, you can imagine if, uh, well, just for the sake of argument, Canada took over the United States. <laughs> let's, just, let's just for a second. Okay, let, let's, pretend Canada, 
Let's pretend Canada's like over the United States, right? And then they said to all of us, oh, you need to go back to your own birthplace, wherever you were born, and you need to register all the time, but you can't do it by car, and you gotta walk all the way there. The whole way there, you would be be talking about Canada in horrible ways. You know, Trudeau. Like, you, you, you couldn't stand this. Essentially what they have. But what's really interesting, and the point I'm trying to make is that the event that reminded Israel of God's abandonment was the same event God was using for their rescue. Exactly the same event. And that's how God's providence works. The moments we rightly perceive as evil in our lives are the same moments that achieve God's good plans for us. All over scripture, this is the story. You'll hear me talk about it forever because the Bible is replete with examples of this because the Bible's trying to remind you, God is trying to remind you through his word that I know that you face all sorts of difficult situations in the here and now and events come into your life that you do not want. And at times they are evil. And you should rightly call them evil, but do not conclude that because an evil event takes place in your life, some circumstance that you did not want there, just because that takes place in your life, don't read that as my abandonment of you. Often I've used those very things for your rescue. I mean, one of the greatest examples of of that is actually the birth of Jesus, or sorry, the crucifixion of Christ himself. This is when Peter's preaching in the book of Acts. This is what he says to the, to the, at at Pentecost, this is what he says to the crowds that are there. He's preaching mostly to, uh, to the religious leaders who are very upset. Men of Israel, he said, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So why was Jesus delivered up to the Romans to be crucified? Because God determined it so. Well, wait a minute, wasn't it wicked? Yeah, you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Do do you see, if you're standing at the cross and you're watching the Jewish leaders hand him over to the Romans who are now crucifying him on the side of the road, you're saying to yourself, what happened? Where is God in this? Those next two days of your life are terrible as a disciple. You've invested all your time, all your energy into following this Jesus. And then all of a sudden, he goes up and he gets killed. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to win, not die. And yet, the very thing that they would have been complaining about as evidence that God was not with them was exactly the thing that God was using to deliver them for ages. The moments we rightly perceive as evil are the same moments that achieve God's good plans for us. This is a beautiful poem written by a guy named uh, William Cooper. Cooper is spelled C-O-W, so it sounds Cowper but it's pronounced Cooper, Thomas Cooper, sorry, not William, 
Thomas Cooper, and the, and the, the, the song is, it's an old hymn, it's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Uh, I wanna read it to you, okay? So it, it is very poetic and quite beautiful, so I'll do it slowly. But just listen to his language as he tries to describe the very thing that I'm trying to describe and that Luke is trying to describe about the providence of God. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm, right? He's totally sovereign. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. So judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The, the clouds that look so intimidating and terrible are the very things that the Lord is going to use to deliver and take care of his people behind a frowning providence. The things that you and I perceive as God doing because he's mad or upset or because it looks like there's something going on with his feelings toward us. That very thing behind that frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. He has, he has reasons for those things that will achieve his good ends for his people at every single turn in the big stuff and the little stuff of life. So my son, Micah, was in um, Vancouver, British Columbia about five days ago or whatever. I can't remember. He's supposed to fly back on the 20th of December. Uh, you probably don't know this, but Vancouver, British Columbia, which doesn't normally get a lot of snow, decided that they would have a lot of snow, like a foot and a half of snow. And around here, a foot and a half of snow is like, oh, that's nice. And we all get in our cars and drive. Well, in Vancouver, like two inches of snow are like, oh, oh my God, it's Armageddon. You know, <laughs> they actually have phrases for, they call it snowmageddon. Every year there's a snowmageddon. Anyway, there's a foot and a half of snow. He couldn't get, it. His, his flight was canceled out of Vancouver. So he tried to get on another flight for the next day. He shows up at the airport the next day. They cancel his next flight. I think there was a third flight in there that he tried to get on and that one was canceled as well. He called me on the phone and he said, Dad, I, I gotta get out of here. I don't wanna be here anymore, right? And I, I, I said, well, look, look, why don't you go down to Seattle? It's about two, two and a half hour drive. You have, we have family there, drive down to Seattle and I'll book you on a flight from Seattle. But that just happened to be the time when we decided that we'd have our great winter storm, right? The blizzard of whatever it was this last week. And so I said, well, you only have a very short window, so you gotta get down there by the next morning. And I'm on the internet, you know, pounding away to try to get this nine o'clock flight the next morning. Guys, I got to the very end. I was working here and I was in a meeting with Jeff Jarda, one of our guys, and he was talking to me and I wasn't listening. Do you know? <laughs> Nothing new, right? He's talking numbers, spreadsheets. Yes, I see the spreadsheet. <laughs> so I'm figuring it out. Finally get this nine o'clock um, flight to the very end of it, right? 
And I remembered, oh, I didn't enter Micah's, some of his information. So I'm like, oh, there's only two seats left. I go all the way back. I have to start again. I get to the end. Gone. Mm. Oh, Lord, what? Oh, it's terrible. Lord, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. I've been praying all about this sort of stuff. The next available one was at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Fine, I'll try that. But that was like right in the middle of Chicago snowmageddon. So I'm like, you're not going to get it. It's going to be... Anyway, and they had all sorts of horrible weather plan and stuff. Nobody could get out of Vancouver. Nobody could get out of Seattle. There weren't any flights leaving at all to Chicago. He's going to be there until Christmas. Anyway, he gets down to Seattle. He shows up there the next morning, and the 9 o'clock flight was canceled. And one of the only flights that got from the northwest corner of the United States slash southwest corner of Canada to Chicago in the last six, seven days was a 2 o'clock flight that he was on. And I was texting with him while he was on the flight, and I was just thinking to myself, I'm such an idiot. I'm such a, I was looking at this passage that day. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. So that's the first one. Here's the second. The providence of God, and then I said there's something about the priorities of God here. Uh, look at verses 8 to, to 20. This is actually the section that, um, that Linus reads. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping over, watch over their flocks by night. Okay, so here's here's interesting thing. First, they're shepherds. So uh, shepherds were not the most well-regarded guys, and they were not the worst type of person. They weren't untouchables or anything like that. They usually worked a bit alone, and if, at night, they would team up. If they were out in the fields, they would team up for safety's sake with other flocks. So you'd have three, four, five shepherds and all their flocks there together so they could work together through the night to make sure all the flocks were, were safe. The only time, by the way, that they were out in the fields, the only time they were out in the fields was usually during the summer months. You know, because it's warmer at night and they can do this. So I, I hate to tell you this, December 25th, prob- probably not. Probably not. So it's, it's warm out there. They're gathering all together with their flocks, just like four or five of them. Shepherds, like I say, not the most important people in the world, kind of like construction workers, right? The way that our society would look on a construction worker, which is like, Oh, man, you know, you're doing a noble job and stuff. It doesn't take a ton of education, but it takes a lot of heart and courage. Yeah, that's what shepherds do. They fight off wild animals and all sorts of stuff and take care of the sheep. And so they're out there just pooled around together. It's not, like, bright, right? Like, if, if, if you're out there and, and it's by night, you, gotta, you don't think about, like, the, the glow from the city of Chicago. I don't know if you've been out camping before. And you're out there in the middle of the night and you don't hear any traffic. You, you, you don't hear pretty much anything except the, the dumb animals you didn't know existed. Now you're scared. The only thing you can see often, and the reason we go out to far off places so we can see all the stars. 
and the light of the moon. You're kind of on edge because when you're out in the field there, the reason you all got together is because oftentimes the wild animals will attack this group at e- in the evening. So you're on your edge, right? You got your rod there ready to beat off the, the animals that try to eat your stuff, you know, your, your sheep. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were, uh, I imagine so, filled with great fear. Like you imagine being in the middle of your camping expedition and all of a sudden this bright, shining, glorious angel appears to you out in the middle of nowhere and you're on your back probably because of the the glory of the shining and you're like, I would freak absolutely out. I can't imagine, my, my wife would be dead at this point. She'd be on the ground, And the angel said to them, (laughs) angel, fear not. For behold, I bring you euangelion. I bring you a gospel. I bring you good news. You remember the stuff you guys have heard about Caesar Augustus? Well, I bring you some good news. And it's of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David... A savior, a savior. God was delivering them, in other words, from oppression again. Now, they thought that a savior meant to a bunch of Jewish people, freedom from the Romans, but you and I know better because Luke is writing this and saying, yes, yes, it was from the Romans, maybe. It was actually from sin, from the greater enemy, for the greater oppressor. Born to you in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. This is a term that's used for the armies of God. Like the ones who beat down all of the malicious demons like the armies of God who go out and accomplish God's work in destroying things or saving them, the operative army of the Lord, all there. It's it's like the Lord has just pulled back the curtain and said, you wanna see what's happening in heaven right now? Woo, here you guys go. There's a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on the earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. Now, I don't know if this is a chant Probably a song that you're hearing all the angels sing. When the servant of the... Oh, uh, I wanted to show you this really quickly. This is fascinating. So when you think about that pulling back, we actually get uh, examples in the scripture of what that looked like when, when God would pull back the, when he pulled back the, the scene so that it's not just the material world that you see, but the immaterial world behind it. So this is an example in the Old Testament uh, about Elisha. They're in a city, he and his friend are in a city and it's just the two of them and the, ar- the enemy army is surrounding the city and they're like, no, there's no way. The servant of the man of God, it's Elisha, rose early in the morning and he went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? 
But Elisha said, uh, don't be afraid. For those who are with us, this is the two of them. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the guy's like, do you, do you know how to count? Is your eyesight bad? Then Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Pull back the material world, Lord, so he can see what's going on in the immaterial. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The army of God present with them. And that's basically what you have when the, the, these shepherds see this army of God. They, they, they see the immaterial world and what's going on in the heavenly realm. But then they're brought back. They're brought back to the earthly stuff that they're dealing with. The angels went away from them into heaven. And the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Here's the interesting thing that I really want to... Uh, put in your mind for a second, okay? The scene when they're at the stable is so quiet and simple and unassuming and backward. And yet the scene out in the field when the material world was pulled back was a massive party, heavenly joy, singing by all of the armies of God. Do you see the crazy difference? See, there's the way that the earth sees the birth of Jesus, and then there's the way that heaven sees the birth of Jesus. Just, just imagine for a minute that you are a reporter. And your job that day as a great reporter is to go and find out what the most important thing that was happening in the Roman Empire that day was. And so you sit down and you think to yourself, where should I go to find out the most important thing that's happening today? And of course your answer is to Rome. And to whose house should you go? Caesar Augustus. And what will you report on? What should be on the front page of your paper? This is the big event that's happening right now. And it would be decree from Caesar Augustus. And yet what was the most important thing that happened in the world on that day? The birth of a little baby in the backwater village in Palestine. Don't, don't you see that what we see in front of us on the earth has a certain set of values and priorities to it? And then there's the priorities of heaven. We cheer about certain things, right? And heaven cheers about other things. They're not the same. The priorities of heaven and the priorities of earth are often very different, God's priorities diverge from those in the earth. And this is really a major, major piece of what the Bible is trying to talk about. The New Testament is trying to talk about when it comes to following Jesus. Is to, to 
understand and welcome and absorb this idea that there is a new way of thinking, there are new values and priorities that come with being a member of the kingdom of God, and it's so different from the world you live in. You, you need, what you need is you need the world to be peeled back and you need to see the heavenly realms and say, oh, that's what's important, that's what's value, that's what's eternal. Not the stuff that the whole world tells me is important and valuable. It's not. So let me give you, as we finish here, a few examples of how this kind of priority changed, plays out just in the everyday stuff of our lives. Okay, as it pertains to something like, like beauty, the earth absolutely bombards us with visions of what it means to be a beautiful person, right? Uh, we can describe it. It's somebody who is small in the right places and big in the right places. It's somebody who's forever 21, well, we name a store after it. It is somebody who has no, they don't have wrinkles, right? It is somebody who has all the stuff together in their lives. It's somebody who perpetually walks in a particular way and has their makeup a particular way or has their hair a particular way. Gentlemen, it's guys who have hair, right? Beauty is defined in our society as almost completely out. If you're gonna spend time on something that makes you beautiful and gets the praise and adoration of all the people around you, go to the gym, spend a lot of time there, never eat pizza, and do your makeup and get a lot of Botox and stuff. I mean, just try to avoid it. Try to avoid the fact that you're older or whatever. That's not beautiful. And yet when you look at the scriptures and what they describe as beauty, they're actually, the, the New Testament actually juxtaposes that view and says, yes, we are all focused on that view. Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. This isn't, Paul's not saying, hey, don't ever think about that. He's saying, don't think about that as your primary view of beauty. Rather, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight, right? When you peel back the layer and you say, God, what are the values of the kingdom? It's very precious, this precious, gentle and quiet spirit. Right, uh, how about money? Uh, the way that our world views money is summed up in the bumper sticker I saw the other day on a car. Uh, it happened to be an Audi, and it said, uh, he who dies with the most toys wins. And, I mean, clearly the guy was, was aiming at all the toys. I'm sure he had lots of other things in his house. I mean, the accumulation of comforts and things that are going to provide you a sense of security for your future, right? You have lots of insurance. You have to have lots of like savings in order for you to, you know, withstand any difficulty in the world. So you're never scared about the days ahead that you've got it all sorted kind of on your own. So save up to the level of even hoarding up in fact, the more stuff you have, the, the, the more people outside of your, you know, your own life who are going to look in on you are going to say, man, that, that guy has got it sorted out, right? You're winning the game. And the money is how we keep track of the scoreboard. And yet, 
you know, you have passages of scripture where God comes along and he's actually challenging that precise thing. Yes, I know you view money that way. And I know that on the earth, those are the values and the important things and the way that everyone views it. Yes, Caesar, see powerful, important. Yes, I get that. But let me tell you a story. Jesus says, uh, so there's this guy, he has extra grain uh, he decides, what should I do with my grain? Now, he could leave some of it out in the field and let the poor people come pick it up, which is really the righteous thing to do. But he decides instead to go, oh, actually, I'm gonna gather all that grain up and I'm gonna bring it back to my barns, which aren't big enough, and I'm gonna build bigger barns so that I have more security and whatever. And I'm gonna sit down on my porch at the end of it and say, my soul, I have everything stored up for myself. I'm gonna eat, drink, and be merry. For the rest of my life, I've got it all taken care of. But God said to him, fool. Uh, you know, what heaven says about our constant chasing of material wealth and comfort so that we can feel like we've got it all sorted out and not really rely on the Lord who says, give us this day our daily bread, that kind of thing. The Lord says, you're a fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? And so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What does it look like to be rich toward God? Well, to be generous, to view that your money is actually not for just you. Your money is actually given to you so that you might be a conduit of the grace of God and you might splash it out on all sorts of people all around you. Very different, very different. Oh, okay, one, one more. Let's talk about power. Uh, here on the earth, the goal is to get power. In fact, many times the reason that you want money is because it'll afford you power. It'll put you in positions where uh, no one will question you, where if something bad happens to you, right, you can actually figure out uh, because you know all the people or you can buy them off. You can figure out ways to hide that thing about you in public so everyone will think well of you. Power's amazing. The goal with your power though and the reason that you want it is so it can serve your purposes. You wanna make sure that uh, you're able to take care of your interests. And so that's what you do. You use other people and oftentimes step on them to get what you want and go where you want. If you're a husband who has power and you say, oh, look, the Bible says that I have, you know, headship over my wife. It's like, oftentimes you use your wife as sort of chattel. You use her as a servant. If you have authority in uh, your workplace, you end up telling everyone else, your job here is to sort me. You, none of you would be here if it weren't for me. So treat me as such. If you're a father, oftentimes you end up using your children in order for you to gain a name, in order for you to look good. That's the beauty on the earth of power. It's what we all want so that we can actually further our interests. And yet, <laughs> and yet Jesus is like, oh, there's a different way. When you peel back the layer and you look at what heaven values and what they rejoice over, it's not that kind of power. In fact, he tells a story exactly about that kind of power. 
James and John, the sons of thunder, come up to him one day quietly and say, Jesus, can I tell you something with like away from the other disciples? Listen, when you're in your kingdom, can we sit on your right and left? Like the prize seats? Because I don't think that we're the kind of like backbench type guys. We're like right up there with you, clearly. And Jesus is like, I don't think, I don't think you understand what you're asking for. No, we understand. I don't think you can bear that. No, we can totally bear it. So anyway, they go away and word starts to spread throughout the disciples. The disciples are angry. Why did you do that? I want to have the right seat. No, I want to have the left seat. Look at my resume. I should be there. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, Lord, it over them. And their great ones exercise authority, domineer over them, but it shall not be so among you. Look, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. You want proof? For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Don't you see the values of the kingdom are so radically different? So here's why it's so important for you to be part of the community of God. You will hear the values of the kingdom being espoused from his book, the kingdom book manual. It will be espoused from his book when you gather together as a church, when you go away and you fill your mind with scripture or with other teaching from faithful teachers, when you spend time listening to Christian music or whatever it is, when you gather together in small groups or whatever, you're ordering your life in such a way that mind change can take place. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. To what? To the values of the kingdom of God. You know that's Charles Schultz who did the video? Um, in 1966, it almost didn't happen. CBS was the ones who uh, put it together. But even in 1966, they were really uncomfortable with a few things. One of the things they were really uncomfortable with was the fact that they were using children's voices. They wanted to say, look, you need to use adults' voices sounding like children so that we can get the dialogue straight and not awkward. They wanted a laugh track, which is always fun because you notice it's really silent throughout the whole things. They wanted to put a laugh track in because everything had a laugh track in those days. They didn't like the jazz soundtrack, the Vince Guaraldi trio. They didn't like that at all. They thought it was a little bit too uppity. Now, who listens to jazz like that? The answer is everyone now. <laughs> like, but the biggest thing that they didn't want is Linus reading for about a minute from the King James Version of Luke chapter two. They were like, dude, you're shoving religion down the throats of everybody. No one's gonna like it. It's... You know, the language is stilted. It's not good. Can we do something else? Schultz came back to them and said, absolutely not. If you want to have a Charlie Brown special on your, t on your, on your channel, then it's going to include this moment from Linus because it's the central thing. 
So whenever you watch it, what you're watching is the product of a man who decided that he was going to serve the values of the kingdom no matter what. He knew better. They just wanted to make it a peaceful, you know, sappy Christmas, hug everybody, you're okay kind of show, but he wanted to make it about the real reason we gather. It's a celebration of Jesus, and that's what Christmas is all about. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for uh, your word and for the, well, the challenges it lays down, and even this passage and all its priorities are obviously different than the way that we think about stuff. And I pray, Lord, that this uh, Christmas season, Father, you would reorient our minds. Help us not conform to the pattern of this age that's passing away, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord, every day, would you help us renew our minds? Would you order, help us order our lives in such a way that that kind of renewal will take place? Just to question the ways this world sees things and seek guidance from the word of God on every subject. And most of all, come thou long expected Jesus. Bring your kingdom in its fullness, we pray. Amen.